Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Tonight, if you would take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, you will know this text as it is referred to in my judgment erroneously as the Lord's Prayer. I think more accurately it is to be called the model prayer because the Lord's Prayer is found in John 17, the high priestly prayer of our Lord on the night in which he was betrayed. But in Matthew's Gospel, you have this model prayer that teaches us how it is that we are to pray. And interestingly, as I'll point out in the notes, uh, though this prayer in many ways has a very strong kingdom focus, uh, these verses are not listed in the scriptural references of Article 9 on the kingdom. But Matthew 6, verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And though there are some manuscripts that do not contain the final phrase of verse 13, the New King James does, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Article 9 of the Baptist Faith and Message deals with the kingdom, and as we're going to point out, most ancient Baptist confessions of faith had no article on the kingdom, and so I'm grateful that we indeed find this article in the BFNM. The kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty, that's a key phrase, over the universe, and his particular kingship, that's another key phrase. So he is generally sovereign over all things, but there is a particularity to his kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as their king. That is, those who are born into the kingdom of God by faith in the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation. Another key phrase, the realm of salvation, into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. And so again, I, I just find it fascinating that in the scripture references below, uh, Matthew chapter 6 is not there. But the full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this age. And the key phrase there is the full consummation. Now, because the theme of the kingdom is so prominent, especially in the New Testament, I have included a lengthy number of verses to show you just one, how prevalent it is, and we'll even point that out in our study of the article, and then also how many different facets of the kingdom are addressed in the scriptures as well. But of course, the initial foundation for the kingdom is found in the very first verse of the very first chapter, the very first book, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and therefore he rightly rules over that which he has created, both the heavens and the earth. You'll note that there's only one other reference that I'm citing tonight, and actually there are only three 
references in the Baptist faith and message from the Old Testament. But Isaiah chapter 9, that wonderful Christmas text, certainly fits well here. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, the kingdom, will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, his kingdom and peace. Uh, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And so there is a forever aspect to the kingdom reign of this child, this son in the Old Testament. The zeal of the Lord of hosts indeed will perform this. Now, as we begin to move through these references, let me go ahead and point out that Jesus addresses the kingdom more than 100 times in the Gospels. In particular, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, though it is not absent from the Gospel of John either. In fact, perhaps one of the most famous texts, if not the most famous text, John 3.16 is right in the midst of a discussion about the kingdom and how one gets into the kingdom. But Matthew, because it is a gospel written to the Jews about their coming king, speaks extensively about the theme of the kingdom. So, Matthew 3, 2, this is John the Baptist Baptist speaking, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 12, 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, says Jesus, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So a sign of the coming of the kingdom is the, the, the forces of God and righteousness beginning to overcome the forces of evil. And in particular, a sign of the kingdom is the exercising of the demonic. Uh, Matthew 13 is the parables of the kingdom. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 talks about the, the evidences of those uh, in terms of lifestyle who are in the kingdom. Matthew 26, 29, on the night in which he was betrayed, when he inaugurated the Lord's Supper. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drank it new and with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we'll see even later that Jesus places great stress on the fact that the kingdom ultimately is the kingdom of his Father, the kingdom of God. It has his particular uh, realm in view. Mark 1, 14 through 50. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So interestingly, uh, both Jesus and John the Baptist called men to repent. First words out of their mouth in their public ministry. And both of them also called men to repent in light of the fact that the kingdom of God had come. Uh, the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, just keep in mind that there is a sense, and I'm going to address this again in the notes, but there's a sense in which the kingdom has come and is here. And yet there is also a sense in which the kingdom is yet to come. It is both a now and not yet reality, as we often say in terms of theological categories. Uh, it has begun, but it has not reached its full, complete consummation. That's why, again, the last statement of the BFNM uh, 2000, Article 9, is important. The full consummation of the kingdom, the full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. Mark 9, 1. 
And he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. And I think that was a reference most likely to the transfiguration that took place shortly thereafter his making this statement. Luke 12, 31 through 32. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, whatever the kingdom means. Luke 17, 20 through 21. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, is that an exclusive statement? Is it only the case that the kingdom of God is in those who have received the king by faith? No. But that is certainly one valid aspect of the presence of the kingdom today. Uh, those who are who fall into what are called classical dispensational categories would often say that we now live in the grand parenthesis and that the kingdom has been postponed. Um, if you're old enough in this room to have cut your teeth on either the Schofield Reference Bible, the first one, or the new Schofield Reference Bible, um, you would perhaps have been taught by the footnotes at the bottom of the page that the kingdom had been postponed because the Jews rejected their king, and therefore the kingdom age is yet to come. It is still out there uh, in the future. Well, they're half wrong and half right. They are half right in that the full manifestation of the kingdom is still out there. But they are wrong in arguing that the kingdom has been postponed. No, the kingdom was inaugurated and the kingdom began when the king came the first time. Hence, Jesus can say, for the kingdom of God is within you. Luke 23, 42 and 43, Jesus said to him, uh, Lord, or then he said to Jesus, this is the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So there's some sense there in which paradise and kingdom have some type of overlapping or synonymous meaning. So already you ought to be seeing the idea that the, that the thought of the kingdom is very diverse, very multifaceted. You can't just kind of have a, a pinpoint definition of it because it's much bigger than that. All right. John 3, 3. Now we turn into a different direction. Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 18, 36. When Jesus is before Pilate, he answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, wait a minute. You already told us the kingdom is within us. And you told us that the kingdom was near. I mean, he did say that, didn't he? Now he's saying, no, my kingdom is not of this world. The consummation of his kingdom. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. In fact, kind of builds on what he said back in John 3 when he says, my kingdom is not from below, but from above. All right. Acts 1, 6, 7 and 8. Therefore, when they had come together, the disciples, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He didn't tell them it wasn't going to happen. He doesn't say God's through with the Jew, as some particular theologies out there say today. No, he just simply says, uh, when I do this, it's none of your business. 
Now, here's what is to be your business between my first and second coming. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witness to me, to witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's our job in this particular period of time. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He's talking about Jesus. And the last enemy that he will, uh, that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident, at least right now, that he who puts all things under him is accepted. In other words, God is not part of all things that come under his feet. Now, when all things are made subject to him, that is to the Son, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Colossians 1.13. He, that is the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So you say, was it the kingdom of the Father or the kingdom of the Son? Yes. Yes. It is their kingdom. He, I imagine the Holy Spirit gets a little share in there too, but that's for another day. Hebrews twelve twenty eight. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, wait a minute. God the Father receives the kingdom? Yes. God the Son receives the kingdom? Yes. We get to receive the kingdom? Yes, because we're co-heirs with Christ. So whatever He gets we get in some real valid sense as well. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, a king of priests, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of his name who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And then two last verses, Revelation chapter 1, verses 6 and 9. And he has made us kings and priests. You may have a translation that says he has made us a kingdom of priests. And that may be the best way of understanding it. Kings and priests to God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that John puts on both sides. He brackets the word kingdom with the word tribulation. And the word patience, which also indicates a number of things, but certainly that he viewed the kingdom as already a present reality in his life, even though the kingdom that he was a part of had him exiled to the island of Patmos, where he was going to be left to die, though he may have been released for a short time. We don't know. Then Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there was a loud voice, or there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world, these kingdoms have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And, of course, many of you would recognize immediately that those are words found in the great hallelujah chorus. All right, with all of that out there, then, as, uh, as puzzles on the table now needing to be put together, let's see what we can try and accomplish this evening. The kingdom of God is a multifaceted concept in the Bible. In fact, two words drive how we should think about the kingdom. You might want to mark these words. It is a realm. It covers a particular uh, uh, geography, if you like, both this earthly and uh, otherworldly. It is a realm, 
and a rain. Okay, it is a realm and a rain. It is also both a now reality and a not yet reality. In fact, all of my life, and for many of you, we have sung a song that in some ways captures this now not yet reality, the song Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, so he's mine right now. I've got the king, and if I've got the king, I've got the kingdom. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. In other words, I have right now just a a little taste of what it's someday going to be like when the fullness of the kingdom is realized. So I have it now, but I don't have all of it yet. Hence, it is a now and not yet reality. The 1963 and 2000 BF&M on the Statement on the Kingdoms are identical. And even up on a cursory glance, the Bible passages which are listed along with the statements reveal much detail about the kingdom. Interestingly, the greatest concentration of references is from the Gospels. I mentioned that just a few moments ago, including seven consecutive chapters of Matthew alone where the kingdom is extensively discussed in four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. The references from the remainder of the New Testament are less numerous, and many of these deal with the consummation of the kingdom. So Jesus, in Matthew 4 through 10, is for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, is inviting people to become a part of his kingdom right now. But other references later speak for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part about what it's going to be like out there in the future when you have the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, his return and his establishment of his worldwide cosmic reign that all will see and all will be subjected to. Everyone is not subjected to King Jesus right now. Someday everyone will be. As Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is the full consummation, our hopeful expectation of the kingdom. Next paragraph then. The Old Testament references are sparse because the phrase kingdom of God does not occur there as such. But, don't miss this, it does not negate the fact that the idea is present. Indeed, the greatest concentration, again, occurs in the Gospels because the kingdom of God was the favorite theme of Jesus, occurring more than 100 times in his teachings. If I were giving you all a final exam at the end of the BF&M 2000, that would be a test question. What was the favorite theme of Jesus? And the answer was he loved to preach and talk about the kingdom of of God, because I think he loved talking about the kingdom of his father. So if we go line by line, which we haven't normally done, but we are going to tonight, and we make just a quick observation, what can we discover about what the BFNM 2000 is emphasizing? Well, the first phrase, the kingdom of God includes both his sovereignty over the universe. Next page. As creator, God is absolute ruler over his universe. Indeed, many Old Testament passages speak of the sovereignty of God in terms of his being the king. In fact, you find that repeatedly in the Psalms. The New Testament also refers to the dominion of God as the creator king. For example, Acts 17, 22 through 31. But again, if I were giving you a test, where do you find in the Old Testament the greatest concentration on God as king of his creation? Answer, it is found in the Psalms. So he is the absolute ruler over creation, uh, over all these made in general. 
But he also includes his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Thus, in the Bible, God's kingdom does not refer so much to a place, interestingly, as it does to a rule. That is God's dominion over the lives of individuals. As Jesus said, it's not a worldly kingdom. John 18, 36, we read that a moment ago. And for Matthew, the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are clearly synonymous, though. There was a time when there was a particular school of theology, uh, classical, maybe even hyper-dispensationalism, that tried to separate the two ideas, but they basically functioned synonymously in the Bible. Kingdom of heaven equals kingdom of God. Next paragraph, then. The rule of God in people's lives was a favorite theme of Jesus' teaching. He taught that it is near. I would mark that. As near as the individual's response to his message. You believe his message, boom, you are in the kingdom. In fact, he went on and emphasized how it was within the hearts of individuals and the community of disciples who embrace God's rule over their lives. In other words, the kingdom of God is always near to anyone who is hearing the gospel. And for anyone who believes the gospel, the kingdom becomes a living reality in them. Why? Because the King of kings and the Lord of lords now rules and reigns and lives inside of them. The kingdom was also Jesus' favorite subject for his parables. And through them he taught its many aspects. Matthew 13, 1 through 52. Later New Testament writers emphasize that the kingdom consists of believers who accept the rule of God in their lives through the atoning work of Christ. And you find references to this in Romans 5, Colossians 1, and Revelation 1.19. Particularly, next statement, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. You know, I really like the way that's said. Trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. A child can be saved. Adult can be saved, but only if they have childlike faith. I like that. The connection in between the kingdom and salvation is already present in the teaching of Jesus, John 3, 3. You must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. It is found throughout the New Testament, though often not in explicit kingdom language. But believers do constitute a special kind of kingdom subject. They are a kingdom of priests. They both serve and reign. Now, keep that in mind. The Bible says that you and I in Christ are priests. Well, what do priests do? Priests serve. They serve God and they serve others. And yet we are a kingdom of priests. So as priests, we serve. But as kings, we reign. And by the way, Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And therefore, we likewise can mirror his ministry as well. And in particular, the Bible specifies the idea of a kingdom and a kingdom of priests. Finally, Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on the earth. Now, next page. This statement obviously alludes to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.10. Interestingly, and again, I'm just blown away by this. I can't believe that my good friend Adrian uh, uh, Al Mohler, who was the primary uh, architect of revising the Baptist faith in Message 2000, didn't add this into the Scripture references. He just must have been having a bad day. I don't know what was going on. I don't know what he was thinking. Well, he wasn't thinking because they should have put the verse in there, but it's not. But anyway, this text is not in Article 9, but the statement of it is. Now, one must be careful not to misinterpret. We do not bring the kingdom by our own effort. 
God's sovereignty is eternal. And he brings his kingdom to us as he draws near us in mercy and love through our response to Jesus Christ. Mark 1, 14 and 15. On the other hand, a life of committed Christian service is the sure sign. Mark that the sure sign that one belongs to the kingdom's flock. Matthew 25, 31 through 46, where Jesus said, if you give a drink of water to one of these or you Uh, Go visit them in prison or you clothe them. If you've done it to one of them, you've done it to me. Some people have wrongly taken that out of context and say, well, here is a text that then is affirming that we're saved by our good works. No, Matthew 25, 31 through 46 is giving you the evidences of someone who has been saved. You will treat others like this if you are already a citizen of the kingdom. Then the last statement. Of the BFNM 2000 Article 9, the full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this age. The kingdom of God is eternal. It manifests itself at present, I would mark that, in the lives of believers. So that's what's going on right now. It will, though, be fully consummated. That is, we'll see its full Flowering manifestation. Think of Jesus coming back to the earth. Think of Jesus destroying the devil, the antichrist, the false prophet, all those forces that are opposing him. Think of Jesus establishing on this earth his millennial kingdom, his thousand year reign on the earth from Jerusalem as the capital of the world. Think of him destroying in his final rebellion Satan after he is released following the thousand years. And think of him establishing what Revelation 21 and 22 call the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. For behold, I make all things new. There is the full cosmic manifestation of the kingdom. We're not seeing that right now, but we will, praise God, see it one day. Thus, the future dimension of the kingdom is already implicit in Old Testament promises of an eternal reign of the Messiah King, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23. Jesus also spoke of that further time when he would sit at a table in the Father's kingdom with all of his disciples. Thus, at the end of time, all of God's enemies will be vanquished and the reign of the Lord Jesus will and God the Father will be all in all. That's 1 Corinthians 15 language. This future kingdom then will be an abiding city for all believers, a new heaven and a new earth where all the sorrows and imperfections of this life will have disappeared forever and ever and ever again. Uh, Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, two of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible to give us comfort in this day and time when we see so much pain, uh, so much hurting, so much injustice. Uh, There is coming a day, as uh, Abraham was informed, when the God of all the earth will do right. Uh, Everyone is going to give an accounting. There, There will be a day when every evil dictator gives an account for the the thousands or perhaps millions that he so badly mistreated and in many cases murdered and sought to exterminate. Now, what are some theological observations we can make then in summary from this line-by-line observation? Baptist Confessions of Faith historically neglected to include a separate article on the kingdom of God, which is fascinating considering how much print it receives in the Bible. 
The first and second London Confessions. Those are Baptist confessions of the 1600s, by the way. Briefly mentioned the kingdom in connection with the kingly office of Christ. So they connected to his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. So there's a brief mention of it there. The New Hampshire Confession of 1833, which is the foundation of the Baptist faith and message, 1925, which is the foundation of the 1963, which is the foundation of the year two, of the one 2000, it did not contain or include an article on the kingdom. Top of the next page. Further, confessional statements from other nationalities like British Baptist, German Baptist, Swedish Baptist, failed to address the subject of the kingdom. You say, well, then why in the world did we do it? This is very fascinating, and I give credit here to my friend Mark Rathel at the Baptist College of Florida. Historical developments within 19th century American life explain the inclusion of an article on the kingdom in the Baptist Faith and Message 1925. During the latter part of the 19th century, American Protestant liberalism attempted to, quote, bring in, close quote, the kingdom of God through a movement known as the social gospel. And in fact, the major advocate of the social gospel was a northern Baptist by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch. Now, Rauschenbusch said a lot of good things in terms of our need to to live out the ethic of Jesus and, and to care for the hurting and to care for the poor and so on. But what happened is the gospel itself got eclipsed. And that's why it's called the social gospel. In fact, I, I, who was it that said it the other day? Maybe it was David Platt. Maybe it was somebody, I don't remember, but it was a great statement. Uh, it's easier for you and me to give a hundred dollars to to help the folks in Haiti, or make it a thousand. It's easier for you to give a thousand dollars to help the folks in Haiti than you to go down there and share the gospel with them. In fact, you'll do that before you'll go across the street and share the gospel with your lost neighbor. And it makes you feel good, doesn't it? Well, I gave a thousand dollars to help the folks in Haiti, and, and that's good. But guess what? Can I quote Jesus? What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and what? Lose his own soul? Answer: Nothing. 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 A, 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 a do-good atheist will want to go help the folks in Haiti. He want to help them rebuild their homes. He want to help them with medical necessities. He want to help them uh, with getting their lives back together. All good things. All good things. But if that's all you're doing and all you're preaching, then the bloody atoning work of Christ, which is the means whereby people get into the kingdom, is lost and eclipsed. And so in 1925, they were battling um, evolution. And they were also battling the encroaching, growing movement of the social gospel. And so that probably does explain why the statement is in there. And it also explains why the statement is articulated in the way that it is. Because it's very strong on the fact that you get into the kingdom, how? With a childlike faith. You can't earn your way into the kingdom. In fact, Rick Warren is right here. Anytime you put a word in front of the gospel, you negate the gospel. It's not the social gospel. It's not prosperity gospel. It's just the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that King Jesus has died in the place of sinners. He has paid in full the penalty of their sin. And anyone who repents of sin and places their faith in Christ will be saved. Now, that's the gospel. Doing good things for others may be and should be an implication or a natural outgrowth of the lifestyle that results from the gospel. But it's not the gospel. It is not 
the gospel. And we need to keep the two things uh, very clearly separated. All right. So that is probably why there is a statement about the kingdom in uh, the Baptist faith and message uh 1925, 63, and then we kept it in 2000. Now, here's something interesting. I'll move back to my notes. We're seeing a revival today of a movement of what is called social justice among especially a younger generation. And it's good and bad. It's good in that they care very much about us reaching out and assisting and helping those who are less fortunate than we. And let's just be honest. Most of my generation did not do diddly squat here. We, we were pathetic. All right. So I'm grateful that the younger generation, big on adoption, big on uh, getting clean water, big on trying to alleviate uh, pain and suffering and hurt through the widespreadness of disease. Well, they're after that. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. But already there is a movement to let that kind of activity eclipse uh, place into the shadows the very basic truth of the gospel. And so we've got to be very cautious that we don't get swept up with that kind of good movement that in essence becomes a bad movement if it loses the gospel. Because again, quoting Jesus, what does it prosper a man or profit a man if he gained the, the whole world and loses his soul? The answer is he doesn't get profited at all. Doesn't help him at all. So, this is what happened. So, next paragraph. Given the promise of the kingdom motif in the life of ministry of Jesus, one might expect the BFNM to locate the article on the kingdom back up after the article of God, which would make it uh, number two, or number three, excuse me. But the BFNM properly locates the article on the kingdom between the articles on the church and the articles on last things. Thus, the church is not the kingdom. Yet the church witnesses to the kingdom. That's a great statement. We're not the kingdom, but we are part of the kingdom and we witness to the kingdom. Thus, the consummation of the kingdom awaits the personal return of Christ. So let's highlight as we move to conclude tonight four theological aspects of the kingdom that, again, you see in this statement. Number one, according to the BFNM, the kingdom of God is cosmic. It states the kingdom of God includes his general sovereignty over the universe. Again, although the phrase kingdom of God does not occur in the Old Testament, the concept of God's kingdom is central to the Old Testament. God's, God reigns as king over the cosmos in his role as creator. And as I said earlier, the Psalms in particular draw attention to this. So he is the king of the cosmos over everything. Second, according to the FNM, the kingdom of God is Christocentric. That is, it is centered in Christ. The BFNM highlights the Christocentric nature of the kingdom by noting that people enter the kingdom by faith in Christ. And the kingdom consummation takes place at the return of Christ. According to George Beasley Murray, who taught at Southern Seminary for years, Jesus is the contender for, initiator of, instrument of, representative of, mediator of, bearer of, and revealer of the kingdom. I like that. Uh, that's pretty good, especially for a scholar. I mean, that preaches, but the scholar wrote that, so that, that's pretty good. 
At his trial, Jesus claimed that his kingdom did not operate based on worldly principles. Thus, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. Top of the next page. God the Father then gave the Son a kingdom over which the Son will rule until he defeats all his enemies. And then the Son will willingly give the kingdom back to his Father. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Daniel 7 details the demise of godless kingdoms through a very mysterious figure called the Son of Man, who receives an everlasting kingdom comprised of every people and language group. In other words, missions is all in the idea of the kingdom. Indeed, the angel Gabriel announced the forthcoming birth of one who receives the throne of David, Luke 1, 32 and 33. Jesus' earliest sermons addressed the topic of the kingdom. Our Lord taught the arrival of the kingdom with the advent, the coming of his initial ministry. His healing miracles and exorcisms in particular testified to the arrival of the king and his kingdom. In other words, what Jesus did here and there with the demons, he's going to do with all the demons at the end of the age. All the demons are going into the lake of fire. Satan's going into the lake of fire. What he is doing progressively now he will do climatically and comprehensively at the end of the age. Thus, the parables often focused on some aspect of the kingdom, including the growth of the kingdom between the advents or two comings. Remember, Jesus said the kingdom is like what? A, a mustard seed. It is the smaller of all the seeds. But that thing grows into a monstrous tree. And so that's what the kingdom is like. It starts off very small. Almost you can't see it. But its destiny is one of fantastic worldwide growth. How do you know that? Revelation 7. Around the throne, John says, a number I could not count. So big, so large, so massive. Where, John? From every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. That's what the little mustard seed is going to grow into at the end of the age. Third. According to the FNM, the kingdom of God is soteriological, rooted in salvation. It emphasizes this aspect of the kingdom in two ways. First, kingdoms, uh, kingdom subjects willfully acknowledge God as king. More importantly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation to which one enters by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Further, according to Jesus, a birth from above, a, a new birth is a prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom. Furthermore, Paul says in Colossians 1.13 that salvation involves a kingdom transfer. You come to this world, you're part of a kingdom. Did you know that? All of us in this room were born into a kingdom. You say, what kingdom? The kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of death. That's where you and I started. However, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we now live in the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Salvation, therefore, is more than salvation of individual souls, but it is certainly that. And the imagery of God's particular rule over saved kingdom citizens depicts the communal, the, the family nature, if you like, of the kingdom. Fourth, according to the FNM, the kingdom of God has a consummation. The full consummation awaits the return of Christ. Thus, the return of Christ consummates God's redemptive plan and results in final judgment, Matthew 25, a climactic resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, and the transformation of the created order, Matthew chapter 19, and I could have added also Romans chapter 8. Thus, in summary, the kingdom of God is both present and future, already inaugurated, not yet fully consummated. 
The kingdom is the reign of God over people. Yet for some, such as myself, what I believe, the kingdom culminates in a realm during an earthly reign of Christ called the millennium, Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Thus, all believers, regardless of eschatological view, must obediently pray as our Lord taught us to pray. And we're back now to where we started, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. And wonderfully, that is a prayer that you and I can pray and have an assurance. It will be answered in the affirmative. His kingdom is indeed going to come. Let's pray. Father. Uh, we've gone fast tonight and come to understand that the kingdom of God, boy, boy, that's a big subject. And yet it is one that was at the very heart of the preaching of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, we better uh, roll up our sleeves and dig into our Bibles and understand what we, we find there. And we find that we can become uh, citizens of that kingdom today by putting our faith and trust in the king whose name is Jesus. And then, Lord, we can pray for the full coming and the full manifestation, the full consummation of your kingdom. When death, hell, and the grave are put away forever. When Satan and his demons are thrown into the lake of fire forever. Where there's a day when there is no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Because all of that has passed away because the king has returned. And with him, his glorious kingdom reign. We, we long for the return of the king, and yet we rejoice in the fact that the king reigns even now in our hearts through faith in him. So may we be good citizens of the kingdom, and may we be bold to proclaim the truth of the kingdom, and may we enjoy the benefits of the kingdom now, but not be satisfied. For blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, but oh, what a foretaste of the glory divine that is yet to come. Thank you, Lord, for such a promise. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.